0: This podcast is supported by MedMastery. At MedMastery, you can learn some of the most important clinical skills like echo, advanced EKG, coronary angiography, and PCI basics, pacemaker, and ICD troubleshooting, and so much more. All their award-winning courses are CME accredited, and as a sweet bonus, CardioNerds listeners can get an exclusive 15% discount on a lifetime subscription. So head on over to www.medmastery.com forward slash CardioNerds today. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series which is a multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of stellar fellow leads and expert faculty from several programs led by a series co-chairs, Dr. Mark Belkin, Dr. Eunice Dugan, Dr. Karan Desai, and Dr. Yoav Karpanchif. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Vena who is the Fellowship Program Director and Director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at the Cleveland Clinic. Join us as we learn all about contemporary data available for acute myocardial infarction and cardiogenic shock in this very important case-based discussion. So stay with us. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education, to continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds
1: without external bias. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Cardio Nerds Critical Care series, my name is Joav Karpanchif, and I'm one of the co-chairs of this series and a general cardiology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm joined today by CardioNerd's co-founders, Amit Goyal and Dan Aminder. Hey, guys. Hey, Joav, Happy to be here. I'm so glad we're all here today. Today, we're talking about the approach to acute myocardial infarction complicated by cardiogenic shock. To lead us in this discussion, we're so excited to have Dr. Priya Kotapali joining us today. Priya completed her medical school at Temple University. She did her residency at Houston Methodist. She is currently the Chief Fellow and CardioNerds Ambassador at University of Texas at Austin and will soon become the institution's first-ever Interventional Cardiology Fellow. Welcome, Priya.
2: Thanks, Yoav. I'm so honored to be here with you today to talk about cardiogenic shock and acute MI. This topic is of special interest to me as I approach my training in interventional cardiology If you look back, it's pretty incredible to see the last 20 years of how the management of acute MI has evolved over time. However, cardiogenic shock, as we all know, remains a very challenging issue. We are therefore so lucky to have our expert here today and leader in the field, Dr. Venu Menon. Dr. Menon earned his medical degree from Jawaharlal Institute of Postgraduate Medical Education and Research in Pondicherry, India. He completed his internship and residency in internal medicine at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York, New York. Where he served as a chief resident. He continued at St. Luke's Roosevelt for his cardiovascular fellowship. Dr. Menon is currently the Mehdi Razavi Endowed Chair and Professor of Medicine at Cleveland Clinic, Lerner College of Medicine. He serves as a section head of clinical cardiology, fellowship program director, and director of the cardiac intensive care unit at the Cleveland Clinic. He's the chair of AHA's Acute Cardiac Care and General Cardiology Committee of the Council on Clinical Cardiology. We are so glad to have you here today, Dr. Menon.
3: Delighted to be here, Priya. Looking forward to this. Gosh,
4: Dr. Menon, thank you so much for joining us. You know, for the team, I've been really looking forward to this episode. Rounding with Dr. Menon in our CCU, aka J31, is one of, hands down, the greatest joys of being a Cleveland Clinic cardiology fellow. And we are so privileged to share some of that with cardio nerds everywhere.
3: Looking forward to it, Amit. Thanks. Now,
4: turning to the discussion at hand, the shock trial is probably the most well-known and most heavily cited trial when it comes to acute myocardial infarction-related cardiogenic shock. And Dr. Menon, you were in the middle of it all, that too in the shoes of a trainee. Can you take us back to your cardiology and research fellowships at St. Luke's when you were working with Dr. Judith Hockman to define the management of AMI shock? Now, as an interventional cardiology fellow, expedient emergent revascularization for ACS is a no-brainer, which... I, and I think everyone on this call, had taken for granted since medical school. But what were the prevailing thoughts and management paradigms for such patients pre-shock trial? And what did we take away from the trial itself?
3: Oh, thanks, Amit. So let me take you back to 1992. It's June 17th. It's my first day as an intern in the CICU. And I get four admissions. One is a complete heart block with Lyme's disease. The second is a guy with Chagas disease with multiple PVCs. The third is a bed and butter heart failure, and the fourth is a patient with an acute MI in cardiogenic shock. And the next morning, my attending walks in, and she's Judith Hawkman, and we go on rounds, and. I had every intention to be a hemato-oncologist when I started rounds that day. And by the time rounds finished, I was so profoundly impacted by her attitude and her approach to those patients that I decided I was going to be a cardiologist. And so a short while later, I don't know how much folks know the Upper West Side of New York. It was lunchtime. I had my pager on. I went across to Broadway. There was a Chinese restaurant there called Ollie's right across from Columbia. I was buying myself some food when my pager went off and I said, you know what, let's forget the order. I need to go back and answer this right away. And I got called up to her office and she said, you know, I like the way you work. Would you like to work with me? And I've got two projects for you. One is cardiometabolic. We want to see what the impact of glucose, insulin, potassium is on cardiac metabolics. And we think there's a role for that in cardiogenic shock. And oh, by the way, we're also going to do this trial called the shock trial. Would you like to be a part of it? And so, for the next 10 years, as an internal medicine resident, as a fellow, and as a young faculty member, I had the opportunity to ride on this great, great, great clinical trial, which really defined what I wanted to be. And it just goes to say that, you know, opportunity comes by and you grab it, and I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. Now, the other part you did ask was what the context was of doing the shock trial in the early 90s because it seems such a basic thing to revascularize patients with an acute myocardial infarction today. So, in the early 1990s, remember, the main form of reperfusion therapy is fibrinolysis. The first balloon angioplasty was done in, by Hartzler in Kansas City around 1981 But throughout the 1980s, balloon angioplasty and especially primary angioplasty is being done in few hospitals around the country. We very quickly realized that in the setting of cardiogenic shock, fibrinolytic agents don't work because with hypotension, you've got reduced coronary perfusion pressure and there's no way these agents are opening up the artery in that setting. But also what emerged in the late 80s and early 90s were series from people like Bill O'Neill and Fayage Shaw from around the country saying that if you did balloon angioplasty on these people with acute myocardial infarction, you could open up the artery with some amount of certainty. And the prognosis by doing that was markedly improved from what we were seeing in thrombolytic trials. And so the NIH got really interested. So the NIH was interested in knowing at that time whether this new evolving technique of angioplasty could really influence outcomes for people with cardiogenic shock in the setting of an acute myocardial infarction. And so that then led to the genesis of the shock trial led by Judith Hawkman and supported by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute.
4: That was amazing, Dr. Menon. And thank you for your insights there. The shock trial is the definition of a groundbreaking paradigm shifting trial. The science that came out of it has changed the way we take care of a large subset of these patients. So, you know, one thing that I'm struck by, though, is as impactful as a trial was, your involvement in it was in the shoes of a trainee, you know, starting, you know, as an intern uh, through early career faculty. And, you know, I think as as trainees, we, we certainly are touched by the profound impact we can have on individual patients at the bedside. But it might be, I think, for many of us, easy to forget the impact we can have on science and trajectories of fields. So I was wondering, maybe having contributed to the shock trial in those shoes and and now being a fellowship program director of a large training program, I was wondering if you could impart some wisdom or advice about getting involved with science as a trainee?
3: I think this is a really important question, Amit, and I think it's something every cardiology trainee should have the opportunity to be part of, simply because, you know, when you read the New England Journal of Medicine or you read a Jack circulation paper and you see a Kaplan-Meier curve and you see two curves diverging, it's very easy to interpret that as treatment A is better than treatment B and this is how I use it in practice. But what's really important is how did we design that question? Why was that question important? How were the patients enrolled in the study? What ethical challenges were there in writing the consent form for that? Were these patients equally included in the United States and, let's say, in China? What kind of stoppage boundaries did we give the Data Safety Monitoring Board? How did we respond to a site that may have been, you know, not putting appropriate data into the study? How do you challenge with recruitment and ensuring adequate women are represented in the study? These are things that you don't really get from actually reading a paper and just looking at the Kaplan-Meier curves. And I think if everyone has the opportunity in some fashion to be embedded In the conduct of a large clinical trial that's asking an important question, there's so much to learn about ourselves as physicians, about our patients, and about getting ethical information that adds to the medical literature because that's ultimately what defines us, right? The thing that really excites us about cardiology is we're a field that's largely evidence-based. We do what we can show really works. But to do that, you need to do these trials in a meaningful way. And understanding the background of how to do a trial is so very important. And so I've been really pleased with you folks and your new endeavors in trying to embed patients into clinical trials, Amit, because I think that's giving that opportunity to so many people around the country who are cardiovascular trainees. Even taking a consent, right? You, You go to the emergency room, someone's in chest pain. How do you go and tell them? You know, I think this is what's going on. I think this is the established therapy. I'm not sure it really works very well. Would you consider going with option B? And these are the risks and benefits. There's a nuance and a challenge to it that should be formative in everybody's education. And I think we've gone a little bit away from that these past few years. And I'm hoping we can return to that in the future.
2: Dr. Menon, your passion for scientific inquiry and the translation into clinical practice is just so inspiring. We're so lucky to have you here with us today. It really is such a privilege to be able to have this discussion with you and so timely because I just completed a busy month as the Cath Lab Fellow and I ran into a very challenging clinical case that I would love to hear your thoughts on. So I was called into the ED for a STEMI activation with very little collateral information except that a 78-year-old man with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and remote history of stroke without any residual deficits presented with an EKG showing anterior precordial ST elevations and ongoing 7 out of 10 chest pain. On my initial assessment, the patient was diaphoretic. He was in distress due to pain, but otherwise alert and oriented. His heart rate was 100 to 110 beats per minute in sinus rhythm. Blood pressure was 100 over 70. O2 sats were 94% on room air. He was afebrile and had a BMI of 27. Exam revealed scattered rails at the bases. Normal S1 and S2 without any murmurs, rubs, or gallops. He had thready distal pulses that were still palpable. No JVD and no lower extremity edema. However, the extremities were cool to touch. We have covered on the series the initial evaluation of shock. So Dr. Menon, given this patient, what are your initial thoughts about his presentation on hearing this exam?
3: I think we're going to have a long night, Priya. This person's obviously somebody who's going to be in trouble. We have an elderly gentleman with a large anterior wall MI, both of which are risk factors for mortality in the setting of an anterior infarct. Add to that, the heart rate is increased and the blood pressure is tenuous. So when you take a look at just four parameters, age, location of the infarction, heart rate, and systolic blood pressure, that accounts for about 90% of the prognostic data for mortality. Uh, And so here's somebody who's coming in with signs of heart failure in that setting. And so we know this person has a very, very, very high mortality, and we need to act with urgency to open up this infarct-related vessel. You know, we've learned about this from the 1960s. You know, if this patient in the original KILIP classification would have met criteria of having RALs in the lung, having a low blood pressure, and being at extraordinary risk, and that remains important today. So I think there are a couple of things that you bring out that remain important. One, clearly, the physical exam, however brief it is, does matter in people with acute MI. Seeing signs of hypoperfusion, listening to RALs in the lung, These are all signs of an ineffective left-sided cardiac output and expediency in a very, very high-risk patient. So I think this person has a very high risk of going into shock in the ensuing hours, Priya.
0: Thank you so much for that, Dr. Menon. And what an amazing story earlier about the shock trial genesis, as well as your personal journey and reflections that we are finding just so inspiring. And for our listeners, what Dr. Menon was referring to earlier regarding trial recruitment was our recent launch of CardioNerd's Clinical Trials Network where we aim to marry trial enrollment with fellow-in-training personal and professional development. And you could definitely check out more about this at cardinerds.com forward slash clinical trials. But anyways, back to our discussion at hand, Dr. Manning, clearly we can truly elucidate and glean so much valuable prognostic information before our patient ever reaches the cath lab with what you said in even a short HMP. So this really highlights the importance of targeted history and physical with real-time vitals. Dr. Menon, we have a really sick patient at hand right now, and we're likely seeing the early stages of shock, SKY class B or C even, and we know that they have an acute anterior STEMI. What is your approach to revascularization in cardiogenic shock in acute MI, and would your approach change if the presentation was more of an N STEMI rather than a STEMI?
3: Not really. I think, you know, in the setting of shock, our first goal, especially when, obviously in this setting, we're limiting ourselves to an acute myocardial infarction is clearly to define anatomy. The reason to define anatomy is that the prevalence of triple vessel disease and left main disease in shock remains very, very high. I would say the LAD is probably 45-50% involved. The left main is about 20% in this kind of a situation. And once we define anatomy, it's key to open up the infarct artery as soon as possible. And so that would be our primary goal there was this controversy as to what to do with the non-infarct vessel and clearly Holger Thiel and his colleagues did us a huge favor by doing the culprit shock trial in which they took patients with shock from an acute myocardial infarction, defined anatomy and randomized them to culprit uli revascularization with stage revascularization downstream versus multivessel revascularization in that setting. And they really showed that doing routine multivessel intervention was actually associated with a worsened primary endpoint of death and need for dialysis. And so I think we should certainly attempt culprit vessel revascularization in this patient. Now, it is important to understand why the non-infarct vessel may be important in this setting. So when we did the original shock trial, remember, a lot of people had triple vessel disease and left main disease. We only had balloon angioplasty at that time. Stents were just coming on in 1995. And so most patients in the shock trial or a large group of patients in the shock trial with left main disease and triple vessel disease ended up going for emergent Bypass surgery within hours of randomization, and they did fairly well. And so, our hypothesis as to the good outcomes on these patients with bypass surgery was that we were mitigating both infarct zone ischemia and remote ischemia. And as a result of that, these patients did well in the short and long term. Holger tested this in the trial, and clearly, what he showed was that routine, and by routine, I mean you're just going to do it no matter what. That strategy does not work. I think there's still a role for possibly performing culprit and non-culprit intervention in specific patients. So what do I mean by that? I think uh, echocardiogram in the setting of an acute myocardial infarction really helps. It defines the infarct zone and it defines the non-infarct zone, right? If you have severe epicardial stenosis in the non-infarct zone and the non-infarct zone looks hypokinetic, I think clinically that's the kind of patient who may probably benefit. But a routine strategy of just opening up a CTO in an infarct zone that might be infarcted in the past clearly should not be performed And in the ESC guidelines now is a class three indication. So for this patient that you described, I think my first goal is get that patient safely and as quickly as possible to the CAT lab. Certainly the patient looks pretty sick. So if the patient needs to be intubated prior to such a procedure or whether I need to use a mechanical support as an adjunct to the procedure, these are all things we may want to discuss. But the initial goal clearly is Go to the lab, identify the infarct vessel, and do your very best to open it up as soon as possible and obtain
1: Timmy-3-flow. Thank you, Dr. Menon. I really appreciate your perspective, especially the historical perspective and thinking about what the research actually showed us, both from the, the shock trial and the culprit trial. Thinking about this patient, you know, I'm really worried about him from our physical exam, like we've been discussing, it's very clear that this patient's in trouble. And to get at your point, the most important thing is to get this guy to the cath lab. You mentioned an echo as potential extra set of data. Is there any other source of additional data that you want while the patient is being emergently transported?
3: I I think there's two things here. One clearly is you want to know everything you can about this patient in that small window of time that you have. What I mean by that is, You want to know, was this gentleman playing golf yesterday? Was he functionally very active? Did he have any end organ systems that were significantly affected? Does he have any ongoing issues that are going to shorten his expected lifespan? Because in the absence of either not knowing this or knowing that he was otherwise very functional, you're going to be very aggressive with what you find in the CAT lab. And the reason I say that is, remember, in the original shock trial itself, age less than 75 was the group that really benefited. And in the clinical trial itself, the elderly, defined as an age group more than 75, did not benefit from an early revascularization strategy. Now, that is in complete contrast to large amounts of data in registries where the elderly benefit just as much from clinical revascularization. And that's because in registries, these patients are cherry picked based on a physician looking at somebody, taking a good exam, knowing that they're functionally active and healthy, and choosing those people. So, age by itself should never be a marker for doing or not doing something. But, age plus what you see in terms of biology is a very potent sign for you to guide you in terms of what's going to happen in the lab. The next thing I think you want to be really careful about with this person is this person has RALs. They look like they're in heart failure. You're going to go in with a catheter and give them contrast. They're having active ischemia. They may suddenly go into pulmonary edema in the lab, and then all hell will break loose. You're calling anesthesia. You've got to intubate this patient. So in some ways, when you have a person like this, I think if they don't respond quickly to some LASIKs or something like that, you may want to electively consider intubating them so that you can do your revascularization procedure knowing that the airway is secure. And then the other part clearly is because this patient is tenuous, you may strongly want to consider adjunctive placement of some sort of a supportive device to decompress the left ventricle and make your revascularization much safer as part of the procedure itself. So these are the things that are going on in my mind as I quickly activate the lab and have my interventionist plan to define coronary anatomy.
2: Dr. Menon, thank you so much for your insight. And as you mentioned initially, we were definitely in for a long night and the clues that we got from the physical exam were invaluable. So, our patient did make it to the cath lab, but en route had worsening tachycardia, persistent hypotension with systolic blood pressures in the 80s, mean arterial pressure in the 55 to 60 range, prompting the initiation of a norepinephrine infusion while he was prepped and draped for the procedure.
4: Yeah, thanks for that handoff, Priya. You know, this context is unfortunately not too uncommon a scenario. We have a patient that is getting worse prior to revascularization in the setting of an anterior MI. Dr. Menon, what is your approach to stabilizing a patient like this? And can you discuss your threshold for reaching for mechanical circulatory support options prior to revascularization in this patient population, especially as there is some interest for deliberately placing MCS devices pre-revascularization to limit the infarct size?
3: Thanks, Amit. So obviously, you know, for most folks who are encountering a patient like this and are not in a CAT lab, they don't have anything else but vasopressor therapy to increase the blood pressure. And we know that nothing good comes out of utilizing vasopressors like dopamine or levofed in this situation in that apart from increasing the blood pressure, everything else is going in the wrong direction. You're increasing the heart rate, you're increasing ischemia, you're increasing arrhythmogenicity you're causing more peripheral vascular vasoconstriction, you're increasing supply-demand mismatch in all the vital organs around the body. And so, vasopressor use, in my mind, should be minimized and, if possible, completely avoided. So, in a patient like this, who is coming into the lab needing vasopressor support, my first thing is, How can I get rid of this vasopressor and I'm going to go on to support? And that's why I'm hoping that along this way, you know, you'd mentioned the echocardiogram. So I'm hoping my smart cardiologist using a point of care ultrasound had quickly just done a parasternal and an apical four-chamber view and said, you know what, Dr. Menon, the RV function looks normal. There's a large wall motion abnormality in the anterior apex. I don't see any MR. I don't see a pericardial effusion. There's no signs of a ventricular septal rupture. If I knew that, I'd say, hey, this is pure, predominantly LV cardiogenic shock from a large acute anterior MI. This person's LVEDP is going to be elevated. They're going into pulmonary edema. It's only going to get worse. Let me decompress the left ventricle. And I got two choices, the intraotic balloon pump and the impeller. I just need left-sided support. From all the data that's come out from the IABP shock 2 trial and other trials, we know that the use of an intra balloon pump in this situation is not associated with a dramatic improvement in mortality. So I would, in such a case, strongly advocate for decompressing the left ventricle with some sort of a percutaneous ventricular support like an impeller cp
1: Wow, Dr. Menon, thank you for sharing your thought process in such a comprehensive way and talking about the options in this situation. Again, there's so much important information available to us even before we perform any invasive testing. And as you mentioned, it is so important to recognize man in shock early and appropriately and then to use that information to make our clinical decisions. In addition to this very elegant summary, I would also like to refer our listeners to a recently published AHA scientific statement entitled Invasive Management of Acute Myocardial Infarction Complicated by Cardiogenic Shock, written by our very own Dr. Menon and other thought leaders in the field. Truly is an excellent document.
2: Going back to our patient, so we did decide to place a percutaneous temporary LVAD, i.e. an impella device for hemodynamic support while simultaneously gaining access, drawing an arterial blood gas with lactate and performing the diagnostic portion of our left heart catheterization. And as you mentioned, Dr. Menon, we did find that this patient had predominantly purely left ventricular failure in the setting of the large anterior MI, and so the echo showed exactly what you mentioned. Diagnostic angiography demonstrated a culprit 100% thrombotic occlusion of the proximal LAD with TIMI0 flow. There was angiographically significant disease involving the proximal and mid-segments of a dominant right coronary artery and proximal segment of a large obtuse marginal branch, which were felt to be non-culprit in the acute setting. As you predicted, the LVEDP was elevated at 32 mmHg prior to percutaneous temporary LVAD placement. The initial arterial blood gas showed a pH of 7.01, PCO2 of 35, PO2 of 58, bicarb of 10, and 0 2 sat of 89% on non-rebreather the lactate was elevated at 6. As the patient is being intubated, we're discussing our revascularization strategy. Dr. Menon, can you talk about the evidence for revascularization of culprit and non-culprit lesions in acute MI?
3: Yeah, so I think I alluded to that a little bit in the prior discussion, but I think that this is the one class one indication that we have in cardiogenic shock is that we know that early revascularization saves lives, right? In the shock trial. The number was 13 lives saved per 100 patients treated. So a phenomenal benefit in terms of mortality. Now, unlike acute myocardial infarction without shock, where we are finding that treatment of the infarct and non-infarct vessel is associated with a reduction in an endpoint, mainly a reduced revascularization, in the setting of cardiogenic shock based on the culprit shock trial, A routine strategy of non-culprit intervention certainly is not associated with any benefit. And this is a fantastically done trial, right? Around 700 patients in Western Europe are randomized to culprit vessel versus multi-vessel intervention in this setting. So in a patient like this, 78 years old, hypotensive, we're going to give, dye. there's going to be kidney injury. What I'm going to do or what I'm going to suggest strongly is open up the infarct artery and see if that stabilizes the patient. We can always defer on doing intervention in the non-infarct vessels at a later time point and that way minimize dye, minimize hazard to the patient. The one caveat where you know, I think I would not do that. Is let's say I saw a non infarct territory that was otherwise viable on echo and severely hypokinetic with a severely stenotic vessel. I might consider intervening on that if the patient remains hemodynamically unstable. But I must say that that is a clinical suggestion and certainly not proven in randomized clinical
2: trials. Thanks for your insight. With the support of the percutaneous temporary LVAD, which we placed via the left common femoral artery approach, we were able to rapidly wean off the norepinephrine. We were able to successfully perform PCI to the culprit LAD lesion with placement of a drug-eluting stent from the contralateral axis site without significant delay. The completion angiography showed 0% residual stenosis and TIMI-3 flow into the distal LAD, which reached the apex. The patient remained electrically stable throughout the case. He received heparin for the procedure and was continued on heparin while the percutaneous fad remained in place. He received aspirin and a loading dose of a P2Y12 inhibitor, clopidogrel, in the setting of his known history of prior stroke. His blood pressure remained borderline but acceptable with full percutaneous fad support, with an impella CP placed at P8 flowing 4 liters per minute. We made the decision to leave the percutaneous fad in place with plan for wean once his metabolic derangements were appropriately corrected over the next day the patient was admitted to the ICU for monitoring. Dr. Menon, we hope that this patient will turn the corner with revascularization and mechanical circulatory support. Once he's in the CICU, what is your approach to monitoring for acute MI complications and also for weaning his MCS support? What should we be looking out for over the next few days?
3: So, you know, I think you've done a terrific job so far, Priya. You've taken this 78-year-old man who comes in with a very high-risk infarction, and you've intervened successfully on the infarct vessel. He looks like he's electrically quiescent, and you've already had early signs of clinical improvement in that he's no longer on vasopressor support, and you're maintaining hemodynamic stability just on your impeller settings. All that's really good, but now we have to wait, right? What you've really done with this person is you've bridged him to a decision. And now what's going to happen really depends on how much myocardium did we salvage? What does return of function look like? Is there stunned myocardium that's going to recover in the hours to come by you giving him hemodynamic stability? And so I'm going to be cautiously optimistic. And while I'm cautiously optimistic, I think there are things I'm going to be concerned about in this person. One clearly is he's an elderly person who's had mechanical support. I want to make sure he's not going to have a bleeding complication because bleeding with devices is a huge issue in the CICU. The second thing we want to make sure of is that he's not having any vascular complications from these large bore devices that have been placed in him. And so we're going to watch for that very, very carefully. The third thing that I'm going to be concerned about is we did make a choice of giving this gentleman clopidogrel, but remember, he's hypotensive, he's got a fresh stent. His risk of stent thrombosis is fairly high. So we're going to be very, very careful and monitor him closely that there's no signs of stent thrombosis. There is very little data on antiplatelet use in the setting of cardiogenic shock in terms of randomized clinical trials. So clearly, if this person had gotten ticagrelor because he was younger and didn't have a stroke, you would try to crush it and give it to him through his NG tube because now that he's intubated, you may want to consider something like cangrelor early on just to make sure you got enough 2b3a on board. But suffice to say, here, you've done a good job. He's on the clopidogrel, but we're certainly going to make sure that that stent remains patent. The next thing we're going to do is repeat an echocardiogram on this patient. So everyone who comes into the CCU, now the fog of war is over. You can do a complete evaluation. You can make sure that he doesn't have any significant valvular issues or hemodynamic issues that need to be addressed. The next thing we would strongly advocate in all patients like this who present to the CICU is hopefully a right heart catheter was placed in the cath lab itself, making it easy for the CICU team. But if a catheter was not placed, we would strongly support placing a right heart catheter to continuously monitor hemodynamic parameters. Now, when you take a look at the guidelines, there's really no strong support for right heart catheterization in this setting. I think it's a class 2B indication because we really don't have clinical trials showing improvement of outcomes by using these devices. But when you take a look at the scientific statement and you take a look at what we feel by the bedside, I think it's really important when you're making active changes in terms of support, in terms of vasopressor use, to be able to look at the consequences of your actions. And for that, a right heart catheter is very, very useful. We often underestimate right ventricular function. And so looking at things like a PAPI index or something like that to make sure that your RV is ejecting appropriately in the setting of what looks like an isolated LV infarction is really important. And I think what's most important to me is the behavior of the periphery. So, in classic shock, we always believed that there's significant vasoconstriction in the setting of cardiogenic shock as the body tries to compensate and maintain blood pressure. The truth of the matter is, most people who have a large anterior wall MI have a normal SVR or are vasodilated. And vasodilatation in this setting is actually not good from a prognostic standpoint. And so the SWAN really tells me what the response of the periphery is. And then I'm going to support this patient gradually wean in the days to come and then make a decision. Can I wean this patient off? And then this patient can then be optimized with medical treatment and be discharged to a regular nursing floor. And that happens about 60% of the time with shock, right? In about 40% of the time the patient's not going to survive, and then we're going to have to make two decisions. They're going to have to make a decision, is this patient a candidate for a left ventricular assist device in terms of durable support or cardiac transplant? Clearly, that doesn't seem to be an option in this case at 78 with end-organ dysfunction. Clearly a transplant's not an option and I don't think the person's going to be a candidate for a durable VAD, so we can't go in that direction. And so if this person cannot be weaned in the days ahead of a support device, then I think we've got to do the next thing that we should also be trained as physicians to make sure that we provide palliative care, wean the patient off support, inform the family, be there for the patient because if this person is in refractory shock, they're not going to make it out of the hospital. And that's an equally important part of managing shock is the care of the patient who, after you've done everything you can, haven't got better and are going to pass away. So what I'm going to pray for in this patient, Priya, is that the effects of your revascularization with Dimitri flow and the relatively early presentation have led to salvage of heart muscle I'm hoping that the stunning of the left ventricular myocardium that you saw on echo is gradually going to result in some return of function that's adequate enough for us to wean off support. And I remain very hopeful that in the next 48 to 72 hours, I don't see any deterioration of renal function in the setting of the hemodynamic insults that this patient has had, this contrast that the patient has been exposed to. And so I'm just going to keep my fingers crossed with fantastic nursing care and bedside monitoring to try to see what the impact of this revascularization is going to be.
2: Dr. Menon, it's so helpful to hear your perspective on managing this patient. Going back to our patient, so we did end up placing a PA catheter before he was sent to the ICU. He had a CVP of 10, a PA pressure of 54 over 32 with a mean PA pressure of 39, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 32 a thick cardiac output and cardiac index of 4.2 and 2 respectively, cardiac power output of 0.58, and PA pulsatility index of 2.2 with an SVR of 950. This supported our decision to maintain mechanical circulatory support overnight. We were able to optimize the patient's hemodynamics overnight, and he ended up doing very well. We were able to gradually wean the percutaneous LVAD over the following 24 to 36 hours and eventually remove the device. The patient remained chest pain-free, electrically, and hemodynamically stable. He had an LVEF of 35% with anterior apical hypokinesis on echo and no other significant findings of valvular disease and no pericardial effusion. And we hope that the patient will recover some of his LV function after revascularization and with good medical therapy. He was sent home on hospital day six with a wearable defibrillator.
3: That's terrific, Priya. You know, I think that's the best possible outcome for this patient, right? At 78 to come in with shock, even in 2020, with access to revascularization, this person had a 35 to 40% chance of not making it out of the door. And you guys just did a terrific job by providing him support, going ahead and revascularizing him and then providing great ICU care. The really heartening thing here is that when you look at the long-term follow-up of the shock trial, the earlier GUSTO trials, and other more recent registry data, once you do survive that initial insult, Patients who have had acute shock tend to do fairly well in the long run. So the benefits of revascularization in the shock trial were seen for the next 8 to 10 years without any dilution in the initial therapeutic benefit. And so I just think that optimizing medical treatment in this person, putting in a defibrillator as appropriate when the person comes back, all the right things to do. But I think what this case also highlights is the fact that we find it very difficult to predict who does well and who does badly in the setting of acute shock. And so, we've had a number of prognostic scores. And I really haven't found any of them useful by the bedside to either escalate or wean back care. And I think till we have that kind of ability, we're going to have to support people aggressively and then go into this bridge to weaning strategy. Because there's very, very few people who, when you first see them at three in the morning, you say, oh my God, This person should not get revascularization because you know what? They have a lung cancer and they have matched to the brain. And so clearly it would be inappropriate to go down this route. But those are just a minority of cases. Most cases come like this at three in the morning. You're not sure what the therapeutic benefits of your intervention are going to be. And so, what these temporary mechanical support devices have really given us is an opportunity to support the end organs while we are able to get a detailed history of the family and circumstances a detailed understanding of whether the ventricle is going to recover what the therapeutic options are and then go with either weaning off the device you know weaning to palliative care or going on to advanced options but this is the best case scenario this is you know why you do what you do and when you're an interventional fellow next year It's such a terrific field that you know when you do things, you're immediately impacting life. You're providing life-saving therapies. And there's very little things in medicine where you can get such satisfaction from what you do. So you're going to have some good times ahead, Priya.
1: Dr. Menon, you bring up some really good points about the ambiguity of how these patients do and the high mortality of cardiogenic shock and acute MI. Fortunately, our patient did very well and was able to be discharged home but a lot of times our patients present with complex challenges so would your approach change if this was a post cardiac arrest patient or what about a patient with terminal disease or irreversible comorbidities that are severely debilitating yeah so
3: clearly very challenging right yav because I don't mind making huge decisions like not going down this track if I have a clear understanding of who the patient was before this acute insult. So there will clearly be people, let's say this were an 85-year-old man with a large anterior wall MI who had renal failure and a creatinine of 3.7 and a prior stroke. We're not doing all of these things because there is no way this person is going to have a meaningful and productive life in the years to come, and we should not embark on this. But having that kind of understanding is extremely challenging in an acute, emergent situation. And so that's why I brought up what I did. And so clearly, if I did not know that, I would give the benefit of the doubt and go all out in this situation. Now, cardiac arrest is a pretty unique situation. So Jake Jensa, one of my colleagues at the Mayo Clinic, has done a lot of work on this. And when you take a look at the Mayo Clinic outcomes, in each stage of shock, if that's complicated by cardiac arrest, the mortality rate increases dramatically. And so clearly, if this was a patient who came in with a cardiac arrest and had manifest ST elevation, I would do everything the same way as we spoke about. But if this person came in with cardiac arrest and non-specific STT changes in this day and age, I probably, based on the data, may not have taken this patient to the lab. The neurological outcome is what's going to determine outcome for many of these patients. But in ST elevation, I think you take them to the lab. And the one lesson I would say is, if someone has a cardiac arrest, right, and you do a quick echo on them, you're going to see an LV that's completely dysfunctional. The EF is 5 to 10%. And you may think, oh my God, this is futile. But a lot of that is just shocked heart after an acute cardiac arrest. And a lot of that might well recover. So even in that situation, if you had ST elevation, I think you would do just what we did for this very case. Now, for the last part of your question was in people who had multiple comorbidities and a short expected lifespan. I think in those patients, to pursue a strategy like this would be inappropriate. And if that is well-defined, I think we should certainly not be putting in these costly devices that can cause harm when we're not going to get the benefit that we desire. So, we need to clearly establish patients who will benefit from an intervention before initiating that process.
2: Dr. Menon, thank you so much for taking the time to go through this case with us. This is truly such a humbling field, as you mentioned, and we've learned so much along the way with this discussion. I have to ask you, What makes your heart flutter about training the next generation of cardiovascular leaders? I'm a trainee at a program that was founded by one of your former fellows, Dr. Clay Cawthon and Dr. Peter Monteleone. And seeing how your ability to provide them with the education and leadership skills to develop their own cardiology fellowship program, among other great accomplishments, it really is a question that occurs to me about what makes your heart flutter training the next generation of leaders in cardiology.
3: I think it's the most satisfying thing for any physician is handing the baton to those who come after you. And I think all of us have benefited from the generosity and the patience and the wisdom of the people who've preceded us. So I think if we go back to this very story, you know, as I look back, working with Judith Hockman in my years as an intern and the resident and the cardiology fellow really defined who I became as a cardiologist. And I think one of the best things about being at the Cleveland Clinic, and I know Amit's on the line here working with Amit and his colleagues, and even just interacting with cardiology fellows all around the country, is that, you know, this is a group of people who are really sacrificed a whole lot to get to where they are. And what they're doing is um, simply pursuing a passion that leads to And improve quality of life and improve longevity for people all over the world. So I find myself in a pretty privileged position, having the opportunity to influence their lives positively in some way. And so if you ask me at the end of everything that one does, you know, what does one look back on? I don't think it's the papers you write or, you know, the individual patients that you've seen. I think it's the legacy you leave behind is, you know, the people you've met along the way, the folks you've trained, what they've gone on to do. And I think, you know, I just value that opportunity so much. And so it's just such a privilege watching this podcast grow because I know, and Amit and I talk about this all the time, you know, I think your ability to get this information out to so many people around the world only reason they're listening to this stuff is because they want to become better doctors, right? And so to have that ability is just fantastic to influence folks to become the best physicians they can be. And so I think that's both a humbling as well as a distinct honor.
1: So thank you, Priya. Thank you so much, Dr. Menon. What what an amazing way to close this episode. And as part of this series that we're putting on, we wanted to thank you again for taking the time and being a part of this episode. And thank you to Priya as well for this amazing case and bringing it to us so that we can learn.
3: Thanks, Yov. Thanks, Priya. Thanks, Amit and Dan. It was a real pleasure and an honor.
4: You know, I'd like to take this time to add a brief reflection while I still have an opportunity. You know, Dr. Menon, you, you might not recall, but soon after my fellowship match, you called to congratulate me. And for me, it was one of those moments you will always remember exactly where you were and what you were doing at the time. And I was honestly, I was beside myself with disbelief and excitement and, and a fair bit of imposter syndrome. I was definitely nervous and I was stumbling over my words and I bumbled my way through the conversation. And I said something like, Dr. Menon, you made my day. And you said something like, come on, man, you just matched into cardiology fellowship. Hopefully it's more than just your day. To which I thought, and I responded, okay, well, at the very least, Dr. Menon, you've made my career. And now, you know, years later, as a cardio nerd and interventional fellow with a thriving family with three beautiful boys here in Cleveland, I can say very confidently that you did make my career. So thank you so much for all the time and energy and, and frankly, the love that you have invested and in, not just my, but the careers of legions of past fellows and future leaders like Dr. Clay Cawthon, both directly and indirectly through everything you've done.
3: Thanks, Amit.